Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. The religious soup we grow up in affects all of us. Sometimes the influences are helpful and favorable, but especially for those off the mainstream, they can be very painful and alienating. Even passages from holy books, initially innocent and positive, can be so badly misconstrued as to become life-threatening. Today's Spirit in Action guest, Kay Renato Lings, tackles the texts of the Bible that have been particularly hurtful to LGBTQ folks with serious scholarship and analysis, helping to repair connections and compassion in our world. His newest book is Holy Censorship or Mistranslation, Love, Gender, and Sexuality in the Bible, and his 2013 book was Love, Lost in Translation, Homosexuality, and the Bible. Renato grew up in Denmark and is currently living in Sweden. Andrew Jansen provided production assistance on today's program, and also keep in mind that there are 15 extra minutes of this interview on northernspiritradio.org, so go ahead and listen to the whole thing. Kay Renato Lings joins us today via Zoom from Sweden. Renato, I'm delighted to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you very much. For me, it's a very interesting invitation because I do believe it's perhaps the first time somebody from the United States and even North America is inviting me uh, for an interview. It's long awaited. Maybe it's because you came out with a shorter book because you have a 300-page book instead of an 800-page book. Maybe the short attention span of people from North America is more convivial with what you do now. <laughs> <laughs> that could be, actually. I learned my lesson when I published the larger book back in 2013 that, yes, it has sold some copies, but it will never become a bestseller <laughs> because it looks daunting. So, yes, I learned my lesson. Could you tell me, Love Lost in Translation versus Holy Censorship or Mistranslation, going from 800 to about 300 pages? So, why did you write either of these two books, both Lost in Translation and Censorship or Mistranslation? It's a fairly daunting task. The amount of work and detail and insight that goes into both of these books is amazing. Why did you dedicate that much of your life to it? I think there was an imperative somewhere on the horizon all the time since I was 21 years old. I grew up in this Lutheran environment, which was very traditional in the rural part of Denmark, and sex and sexuality were just not talked about. So that when I grew into my early teens and realized I was attracted to other guys and, and men, that became a huge challenge. Where do you go? There was absolutely no one I could ever talk to about such issues because nobody else was discussing it. I think that's really where the groundwork was laid for a concern about these issues. Where do you take them when you have these feelings? And particularly when you grow up in a religious environment, how do you match or combine one thing with the other, your faith and your sexuality and your feelings? So I was in a state of turmoil. Well, my teens, I can easily say, and probably depressed most of the time, think, looking back. But it wasn't until I was 21 that I listened to a Danish theologian explaining that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because of homosexuality. I still remember that word, 
homosexuality because this was 1966 and it was not normal to say that word into a microphone in those days. People knew it and we all knew what it meant. But hearing that over a microphone and the loudspeakers, I remember, <gasps> I remember you know, we were 120 students there in that room. It was like everyone froze for like 20, 30 seconds. Nobody moved. That was the day that the groundwork was laid for my biblical scholarship. Having identified as being attracted to men as of your teens and having it be so unaccepted in the society you were growing up in, did you lose your sense of yourself? Did you still feel you were loved by God? Peterson Toscano talks about his transition where he had to accept that God loved him as he is. And that transition for you, were you self-loathing? Were you afraid? Were you secretly happy with yourself? Maybe you were hopeful. It could have been anything. I find it kind of hard to say that in one or two words, to answer that in one or two words. Well then, take three. <laughs> because I can clearly see now, you know, from this lofty height of my current age, that I was probably depressed in those years because I had to keep it all to myself. And I'm basically an extrovert, so that was not a good recipe for success in life. The curious thing, I think, throughout this process uh, and all the depression and all the heartache, I never lost my faith because I met other people who, lo who lost it because they were so, oh, you cannot combine your faith with the Christianity. No way. You have to choose it's either one or the other. I never had that to make that choice. Maybe that gave me some point, some a plank, a survivor's plank to hold on to, that my faith never really was in question. So it was, I think, basically, the one thing that I contended with was loneliness. It was enormous. But for some strange reason, rather, my face was all So God was somehow there behind the clouds, as it were. I just found it a little bit difficult to get a clear signal where it's just taking me. And I did pray, you know, in my teens, will you please take this away from me, make me a normal person so that I can find peace in that. That never happened. You know, I never got an answer for that prayer. So I think maybe I was probably a little bit too dependent on authority. I grew up in a very authoritarian where I grew up, so I had to believe authority. And so when I consulted the medical doctor at age 17 or most at 18, it was around there. He sent me off to a psychiatrist and he just told me, oh, all you have to do is wait. This nice girl will come along and you'll enjoy meeting her and you'll fall in love and blah, blah, blah. So it took me six years of waiting until I realized this isn't working. But I think all of that heartache and that misery of those years, that sits there at the back of my concern for the Bible. And certainly, you know, the, the notion that Sodom and Gomorrah uh, had to be destroyed for homosexuality, that's been there on my horizon ever since. Our listeners for Spirit in Action may not have a very clear sense of where we're going with this, because really, the book that I just finished reading this past week, Holy Censorship or Mistranslation, Love, Gender, and Sexuality in the Bible, that's what we're really talking about. But I think it's really important to understand your personal and societal background, because your identity, being attracted to men since you came out when you were 24, and growing up in a Lutheran society... How do you put the pieces together when the first thing you recall hearing is that Sodom and Gomorrah, that it's all about the evil of gays? That's why this society is being destroyed. Could you tell our listeners for Spirit in Action, Renato, something about your transition from being Lutheran? Or maybe you still identify as Lutheran, I don't know. How you kept your faith and your identity. Yes, thank you. As I said, I grew up in this very Lutheran family. My parents were very church involved. 
I wouldn't say my siblings all were. In fact, we were a mixed bag. We were a large crowd, actually. We were 11 of us at one point. I come from a family of 12, just so you know. Oh, right. <laughs> three of whom my step-siblings were Lutheran, by the way. <laughs> okay. I was Catholic. Sure. Okay. Interesting. We were raised in, in this, uh, you know, rural environment, and my father was a school teacher and even a Lutheran missionary. He liked to use his bicycle to go into neighboring places also and holding meetings with them. And the village church was right across the street from our house. So, I mean, there was absolutely no way we could ignore church life and Christianity and so on. And if we weren't going to church as children, we were going to Sunday school. It was as easy as that. I think I grew up feeling okay about Christianity, actually. Uh, and I, I've kept my faith throughout for many reasons. But as I grew into my teens, I began to feel, mm, this is not really me, the way they do things. I found it was too rigid. We were not allowed to ask questions. So when I finally moved away from home at age 19, I knew that I wanted to find something else, but I was not sure what that would be. And it wasn't until I was 21 and I was studying at this people's college in Denmark, which actually had a strong Lutheran flavor. That became my goodbye to Lutheranism in a way, because I met by chance a person there who was a Quaker. He was from Asia, from Korea, and he had been a conscientious objector, and so was I. So we instantly had a point of connection. We both knew what it was like to be a conscientious objector and all the reflections and feelings that went into that. So we had a lot to talk about this man and me. So that's why I began to study Quakerism. And uh, three years later, three and a half perhaps, I decided to join this very small group of Quakers existing in Denmark. So I think today I probably identify more as a Quaker in many ways. And I've kept some bits from my Lutheran background, particularly my love for the Bible and my love for music, Christian music. So today I, I consider myself perhaps an ecumenical Christian comes close to defining me. But there's a strong component of Quakerism there and a smaller component, perhaps, of Lutheranism. Again, I have to ask the question, what is the Bible to you? Is it a collection of inspirational text? Is it a rule for a living? Is it a historical guide to people of faith? And some people just see it as, you know, it's a doctrine trying to beat you into the shape that they want you to match, but that you don't fit into. And other people find it as the most illustrious guide we could ever ask about how to live. What's it for K. Renato Links? I love all your questions, and I don't know whether or not I have an answer to all of them. But where I am today with the Bible is in a very different place than where I was brought up. Because where I was brought up, the Bible was read and you shut up. Today, I'm in a completely different place. I love reading the Bible and ask questions and, you know, uh, raise uh, issues, uh, look at details, uh, and contradictions and so on. I think the short answer for me would be to say, I read the Bible as literature. I read this as an amazing book where the pieces were written several thousand years ago and then put together over time. And it has turned into a collection of writings of people and by people, with people who have wrestled with their faith and who have wrestled with the big issues in life and wrestled with the question of where is God? So the Bible provides their answers to their struggles and their reflections. And I love that because, you know, they can inspire me in my own reflections. But it's, I don't see the Bible, on the other hand, as a book somebody wrote 
long time ago, and there it is forever after for you just to accept as it is. But what, what does that mean, take it as it is? I really grown to ask that question over and over because many people who say they take the Bible literally have not even studied Greek or Hebrew. So how can they say they take it literally? What they're actually saying, they take their Bible translation literally. And for me as a translator, that is not the same thing. Two very different things. Because if you take your Bible translation literally, that means you have full faith in the person who translated that book. In fact, you are endowing that person with a huge amount of authority over your life by you know, trusting their criteria, their opinion, their, or their interpretation of a text to say this is what the Bible says. I have great respect for Bible translators because they do a huge amount of work, but there is variety there and because people are different and we don't always understand words the same way. And also, it much depends on our knowledge of the ancient world. How well do we understand the culture in which people operated? What do these phrases mean that they actually use to express themselves? What is the symbolic force of their actions? There's just so many details that goes into the Bible that I find it very superficial to say that I take the Bible literally, because that means you're just taking a little snippet of the whole picture. Folks, we're speaking with K. Renato Lings. You can find him on Facebook. Renato Lings 5. I have that link on northernspiritradio.org. And, in fact, on my site I have links to all of our guests of the past 18 years that we've been doing both Spirit in Action and Song of the Soul. So northernspiritradio.org is a place where you can find the links. We're talking about Renato's book, Holy Censorship and Mistranslation, Love, Gender, and Sexuality in the Bible, which came out in 2021. And it's not just an abridgment, but it's an evolution of his 800-page book from back in 2013, Love Lost in Translation, Homosexuality and the Bible. Renato is, amongst other things, a translator, a curious person who wants to take a deep look at the world and what motivates us. He's currently living in Sweden, which I understand used to be part of Denmark, but he grew up in the rural areas of Denmark and has lived in Spain, amongst other places. And it seems to the point, Renato, how many languages do you actually feel fluent in? I feel confidently fluent in three languages, Danish, my mother tongue. English and Spanish. And I'm reasonably good in Swedish, although perhaps not quite up to the level of the other three, because I've only spent one year and a half in this country, and I've never really studied it in depth. But, you know, I'm picking it up from reading and talking to people and so on and listening to radio and TV. So I'm I'm getting there. But I would say three comfortable and one, okay. And then if you press me hard, I'll say, yes, I do understand French and German as well. Again, folks, the link to track down K. Renato Lings is on NordenSpiritRadio.org. Please remember when you visit our site to comment on the programs and or make a donation if you care to support us. That's how we survive. We're sustainable because of you, because we don't depend on government and we don't depend on corporations for our income. And that makes all the difference because the motivation for what we do is not going to fit into some corporation's agenda. So please support us if you're able, and please support your local community radio stations. There's some 35 to 45 of them across the U.S. that carry our programs. So please support them because they survive by the generosity of your hands and wallet. Let's get back to holy censorship and mistranslation, love, gender, and sexuality in the Bible. You start the book off by some observations about what homosexuality is and isn't in the Bible. 
versus what we call it today. The word didn't even exist along the way. So give us that base of understanding what this stuff means when we're talking about the Bible. In the Bible, there are a number of passages where we read about relationships between people. And even some of them are same-sex relationships. There's not a whole lot of it. I identify four uh, such stories. But where I disagree is with those who like to use the word, modern word, homosexuality, when they discuss the Bible, because as we use it today in the 21st century, the word homosexuality is based on the assumption of a relationship between two equal partners. They both have a choice. They may choose to live together, etc., etc. But the basic tenet is equality. That parallelism or that equivalent you won't find in the ancient world, where all relationships were unequal, even within marriage. The husband would always have more rights than his wife. Parents had more rights than, well, they basically owned their children. And, And in fact, the social pyramid was very, very pronounced in the ancient world, you know, with the emperor or a king or a chief at the top, and then everybody else you know, we'd be under there in different layers of social classes and castes and what have you. So the hierarchy was the norm. And so that applies to all relationships, even intimate ones in the ancient world. One party would always be more mature or have a higher status than the other person. So this could be be a free person and a slave, could be one constellation or an older person with a younger person. And that applies also to same-sex relationships. So that's why I don't think our word uh, homosexuality fits. It doesn't really fit. Well, actually, almost none of the words can possibly mean the same because their life experience is so different. So, and I think you make this clear as you go through the Bible, you approach understanding of these words and passages and stories. You say, okay, that's parallel to this story, and these words mean this. And in this situation and in the 20 other places where the word is used, here's how it's used. So you put it in the big context, but still, it seems to me that the only way you can translate any of the words from the original Hebrew and Greek sources of the Bible is by accepting that someone told you what this word means, and it applies to this or that. So we're accepting somebody's word along the way about what these words mean, no matter what. Does this seem accurate to you? In some cases, yes. But in other cases, we can't do that. Because if you take the Hebrew part of the Bible, which is the longer one, it has more pages in it, There are well over 200 words that nobody really knows what they mean. Academics call them hapax legomena. And those are those words that just appear once in the whole, all of scripture and nowhere else, which means we're unsure. We can't know for sure what exactly does that word mean that appears in that sentence. If only we had three or four more cases somewhere, we at least we have some more material to get a clear idea what this word could mean back then. So we have a number of words in the Bible, even today, despite or even thanks to all the resources that are now available available to biblical scholars, we are still unable to get a grip on all these rare words uh, you find in Scripture. That's one side of the story. We have to accept that. I'll, 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 I'll erase that bit. What I find troubling here in this context about what the Bible means and what it says is those Bibles, and there's plenty of them because it's become fashionable in our time to produce easy to read Bibles in everyday language that anyone can understand 
even simplified language and so on for young people and da da da. I can see some of the concern. I can understand some of the concern behind them. But where I get worried is when if you have an easy to read Bible and you see absolutely no footnotes anywhere, that and you give the reader the impression that all problems in the Bible have been solved a while ago, and we're just expressing in everyday language what exactly is there, which is not the case. Because I was I was saying to you earlier, there are many words that are still being examined and discussed and desiccated and what have you, and very difficult to make progress on some parts because of that. So I would rather hesitate and say, we have to accept that the Bible holds enigmas, that it holds obscure passages and words. We just have to accept that. But I'm not worried about it, because if we were to understand every single word in the Bible, that also would give us some control, if you know what I mean. I actually like the fact that we have a collection of writings here who challenge us, even today. We can't control the Bible. It's just there. And it always will be there, you know, sending challenges to even well-known passages to go back and read them again. And God knows, sometimes new insight emerges. What we're going to deal with is few of them as we talk about holy censorship and mistranslation. But there's a 300-page book there, folks, that if you get it and read it, you'll understand so many levels deeper than anything we can responsibly talk about in just 60 minutes. And by the way, folks, there will be an uncut version of this interview out on northernspiritradio.org because there are portions of this visit that we'll have to shorten down to fit in the 55-minute broadcast limit that I use. And again, the main thrust of holy censorship or mistranslation is dealing with both ideas and passages of the Bible. You mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah. Why don't we start with that one? Since that's where your thesis was focused, you took four years to look at. Everybody believes that there's two angels who are with Lot, Up come the people of the town, the men of the town specifically, not the women, and they say, give them to us because we want to know them. So know is this word that we have these connotations in English that we think, I knew her in the biblical sense means you had sex with her, right? Yeah. And that's not accurate, evidently. It's not accurate. If you look at it historically, there's been a considerable shift away from the Hebrew scriptures since the Hellenistic ages, they uh, relied on Greek translations of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Greek translation is slightly different. So from there on, you know, it snowballed into something different in Christianity and still is to this day. So what you said about to know is important because if you stick with the Hebrew and read it within its context in that older part of the Bible, I took my clues from the Hebrew prophets who shared a language with the book of Genesis, classical Hebrew. And they have a very different interpretation. It's not about sex. When you look at the word to know within the Hebrew scriptures without moving out of it, you begin to see that there's something ancient legal terminology plays a very important part here. It's full of legal and judicial language court proceedings, punishment, pleas, uh, complaints, and what have you. All of that is there, and the judge of all the earth is there. And so the whole language has a very strong legal framework. And now you have to go back, and this is what I was forced to do to find my clues, because there are so many people have been trying to convince me, and still are, that to know in the biblical sense, of course, it's sexual. Because it says, Adam knew Eve, and she gave birth to a child. Yes, 
He didn't know Eve, but why, why did he say he knew Eve? He took her to be his wife. He made known his commitment to his wife. And from the moment on, he sees his wife, they will share a bed and she will become pregnant. But it's not the knowing itself that in, in because the Hebrew Bible has other terms for sexual intercourse and he uses them frequently. To know as a legal term, it is to make known a commitment. And you in the very story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the first time the word to know appears is in Genesis 18, where the God of Israel visiting Abraham and Sarah thinks about Abraham. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm going to do in Sodom? No, for I have known him. Now, try and convince me this is sexual. I don't see that at all. No, it refers back to the chapter 17 where God and Abraham made a covenant. I have made a covenant with him. I have known him. He is my vessel. This didn't seem intuitive to me, trying to make sense of the we want to know them, because we don't use know in the way you explained it's actually used. I think in our common language in English these days, we might say instead of know, we might say recognized or acknowledged, as in a recognized descendant would be known. So in that sense of acknowledging or recognizing, this passage may make sense as opposed to any sexual suggestion. So the alternative and probably accurate translation then clicked for me, that that's how the author of this book was actually talking. So the important thing in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is to realize that the word to know appears six times. And it becomes actually the, the pillar of the whole story. It's built on these six occurrences of the verb. First, God says about Abraham, I have known him. So that sets a tone for the rest of these occurrences. The second one is, I'm going down to Sodom and Gomorrah to see the nature of the outcry coming before me. And this outcry is also a legal term in Hebrew, complaint. And let me know, let me know, let me investigate. That's the second time. The third one is when, as you mentioned, all the men of Sodom surround Lot's house late at night, knocks at the door and call out to him saying, bring out your two visitors, let us know them. This is the same sense as when the deity says, let me know what happens in Sodom. Here they say, let us know them investigate let us investigate them we want to investigate who are they how long are they here for what is their mission etc that is what they are out to do and then the fourth time is lot where he then tries to resolve the tension building up around his house i mean he's cornered definitely the house is surrounded all the men of sodom are there so are the authorities, the king must be there too, because it says all the men of Sodom are there, so everybody is there. He then tries to strike a deal, and in ancient times, it was not unusual for somebody who felt in real trouble to offer a hostage to resolve the situation. So he offers his two young daughters as hostages for the duration of the visit of these two divine visitors. He explains it this way, I have here two daughters who have not known a husband. And when a woman knows her husband, that means she marries him. That means I have two unmarried daughters in my house. Okay. Now that is mistranslated over and over. Ninety plus percent of all, because of this to know in the biblical sense idea, most translations, ah, he's saying they haven't had sex with anybody. But I'm sorry, that doesn't make sense. In the ancient world, no father with self-respect would say to him, talk about his daughter's non-existent sex life with a stranger or with anybody outside his house. 
it was just not done. And why it wasn't done? Because girls would marry very young anyway. There wouldn't even be a question of sex life. They would marry, you know, in their very early teens. So he's saying, I have two daughters who have not known a husband, not known a man, as translators love it, known a husband. That's what he's talking about. And finally, that very mythological scene in the mountains to which Lot and his two daughters have fled. And they decide uh, after just a short while that, oh, my God, are we going to die here? And our father is going to die on us any day soon. He's, he's old and, and he's probably depressed. He has lost his wife. He's lost his house. So they try to get him drunk and use him as a sperm donor so that they can have a baby and there'll be life after them. And, and somebody should look after them when they get older. And there, interestingly, in the story in chapter 19, verses 33 and 35, the narrator explains that as the two daughters take turns in getting their father drunk and using him as a sperm donor, it says he did not know in her lying down and in her getting up. So while this sexual act is happening, he did not know. So the very story of Sodom and Gomorrah contradicts the sexual interpretation of to know because you can't have sex and not have sex at the same time. So to know... I interpret this also legally because, as I mentioned earlier, the story is full of legal terminology. I interpret it as he was not legally responsible for what was going on or even for the outcome because they did have babies, both of them. Some people think it might be, it means he wasn't aware of what was happening. He wasn't conscious because he was drunk. It could, it could be it. But precisely given the legal nature of the whole story, I think it, there are at least th that option exists to say he was not legally in charge or responsible for for this whole scene and for the outcome of it. But does that mean that the children are illegitimate? Actually, I think in, so to speak, between the lines. The narrator doesn't say it out loud, but I think any intelligent Israeli listening to this story, mm -hmm. the people over there in Moab and Ammon who were supposedly descending from Lot's daughters, that enabled the Israelis to feel good about themselves, or the Israelites rather, to feel good about themselves and feel, you know, slightly superior because they were to love Abraham, legitimate descendants from him, whereas these Ammonites and the Moabites, hmm, you know, look at the origins. Maybe the story was told slightly differently over there in Ammon and Moab, but that is not included in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> and so the overview that I have of this is that there is a long history of people imposing a sexual suggestion on this passage that the townspeople were trying to have homosexual relations with these two angels, these divine messengers, but that that is false. I think you believe the crime of the people of Sodom is a lack of hospitality in this case, and so that's the big sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, hospitality is often mentioned, and I think most commentators actually like it. But again, uh, if you look at it historically, and I've had to do that too, hospitality doesn't become an issue until the Hellenistic period. It is not even mentioned. In the Hellenistic writings, you know, in Greek, there it becomes an issue. So again, that comes with the territory of the Hellenistic age and, and Christianity as a Hellenistic religion. It, it took that bit with it. And hospitality or lack of it in hospitality is definitely in the story. It's part of it, but it's not the detonator of the disaster. I think that's, that should be made clear. The detonator, and now I, I'm turning to the prophets again and to the book of Exodus and other parts of the Hebrew scriptures, which, as I say, do not talk about hospitality or the lack of it. They do talk about another issue, and that, and it's called oppression of an immigrant. 
The statement goes something like this. Throughout the Hebrew scriptures, where the God of Israel is speaking to the people, you shall not oppress the immigrant living among you, for you were immigrants in the land of Egypt. That is almost like a refrain repeated again and again throughout the Hebrew scriptures. But then you wonder, but where is the immigrant here? Well, the immigrant is right in front of our eyes. His name is Lot. Lot, when he separated from Abraham years ago, he went over to the area of Sodom and eventually settled in the town, got married there and had these two daughters. He is the immigrant in Sodom. And the people of Sodom don't respect his rights. He has taken two unknown visitors into his house and they don't accept that. So they want to force him you know, to hand over his guests. And he refuses because that's against the norms of hospitality that he learned with Abraham and Sarah when he lived with them as a younger person. And so there's this clash between the norms of Sodom, of suspicion and, and desire to investigate and Lot's outright refusal to give up or to claudicate on, on the rights of hospitality. But since they don't respect it and they even force themselves onto his house, they want even to kick in the door. They want to arrest him and take him away. Some of these bits, unfortunately, are being mistranslated, so people get a very blurred picture of the story. And I'm trying to retrieve what's in the Hebrew as I describe it in my own books. So the, the oppressed person in Sodom is not the two visitors because they can defend themselves. We even see how they blind the crowd outside as they try to invade the house. You know, the two visitors are able to blind them all. And then eventually they, they'll go home because it makes no sense for them to try and, and stick around there. So it's not the visitors per se that is the issue. That is only the society issue, rather. But it's that issue of the poor immigrant uh, living in the middle of the people whose rights are trampled on and who has to flee. He becomes a refugee because, look, the angels say, we're going to destroy this place. You and your family have to run away from here. Please get up and go. So it's that situation of the poor immigrant and the refugee, really, that's the real issue. And you can see that stated more clearly or, or in legal, more legal terms, rather, in the book of Exodus, where it says, again, this theme of the immigrant is picked up. You shall not oppress the immigrant living among you, for you were immigrants in the land of Egypt. If you do oppress him... I will surely hear his outcry. And this word outcry appears three times in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. I will surely hear his outcry and my anger shall burn. Now look at the anger, divine anger, raining down in the form of fire on Sodom and Gomorrah following this event. And the, the prophets, particularly Isaiah in chapter 1 and Ezekiel chapter 16, confirm this concern for the poor and the downtrodden whose rights not respected. It's too bad that people in the United States aren't aware of this translation, because this seems to be a big issue in the USA as we deal with immigrants on our southern border, where God is clearly not going to be happy with people who are trampling on the well-being of these immigrants from the South. One more point, though, and this is part of the Midrash that you bring out from Jewish tradition. You mentioned Lot's situation in Sodom, that, you know, you must care for the immigrants because you were once immigrants when you were in Egypt. But that passage, that dictum, is given to the Jews well after the Sodom and Gomorrah episode. You're quite right about that. So you might say I'm, I'm being anachronistic almost here. 
But I don't think I am, because if you look at the, even the book of Genesis, which is the very first, at least as we read the Bible, is as the number one book. The story of Lot and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in particular is the very centerpiece of the wider story of Abraham and Sarah. And who were Abraham and Sarah? They were the number one immigrants in the land of Palestine. So the whole story is about immigrants and their plight. Even Abraham faced dangerous situations as an immigrant. But the difference between Abraham and Lot is that Abraham carried the promise. And so he was able to weather the storm thanks to divine help. Whereas Lot chose to go to the people of Sodom who were not believers in the same God and had different cultures and different practices. And that's why his life basically went down the drain. And it ends in oblivion and the loneliness way up in the mountains somewhere. But my point is, and that has been ignored, unfortunately, by most commentators. They don't see that the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, chapters 18 and 19 of Genesis, are the very centerpiece of the story of Abraham and Sarah. There's a lot more detail about this, folks, in K. Renato Ling's book, Holy Censorship and Mistranslation, Love, Gender, and Sexuality in the Bible. I should mention, by the way, in each section, you end with the question, is this mistranslation? Is it censorship? And you try to decide which way these translations into Greek, Latin, English, Spanish, all the other languages, whether the parts where the original sense of the passage is lost, is this due to censorship or mistranslation? And when you're dealing with sexuality, the issue is so loaded. And I also think with respect to immigrants, it's loaded with extra emotional weight. Again, the Bible is at the centerpiece of so many people's sense of meaning. The majority of people in the United States are raised revering the Bible, and yet these same people who are revering the Bible evidently have no problem at all trampling upon the immigrants as they come across our southern border, or if they're Muslim, or if they're gay, or whatever. There's any number of ways in which a holy tenant of the Holy Bible just gets completely ignored. So, is the Bible valuable? Do the contents matter? I put the question again because clearly so many people claim to revere the Bible. They tell you to swear on the Bible, whereas Jesus says, don't swear. (laughs) As Quakers, we recognize the importance of the Bible passage about not taking oaths, just telling the truth all the time. But clearly, so many people can revere the Bible without having any sense of what it is or really valuing it, or instead valuing their prejudices more than their holy book. Yes, and this takes us back to an earlier point where people, when they talk about the Bible, I always ask them, what exactly do you mean when you say the Bible? Have you studied it in Hebrew and Greek? So let's discuss what you found there. Or are you talking about the King James Version or the New International Version? Or which version do you refer to anyway? And then let's take it from there. Because it's very easy to say, I believe in the Bible and so on. But what they're actually saying is they believe in the Bible, somebody translated for them, which, as far as I'm concerned, is not solid ground. I have realized from my own research that I needed to delve deep into the Hebrew and into the Greek to see what is actually there in those words that are translated by people today who have certain opinions. And my area of concern is has now become clear is love, gender, and sexuality. And precisely in those areas, they're fraught in some circles where people have very strict opinions about 
behavior and behave on norms of relationships. According to them, it's all adjusted to the Bible, but I'm sorry, I don't see that. The Bible, no, I, I was just trying to clarify what exactly do people mean when they say the Bible? What version are they referring to? Because it's a fact of life, isn't it? That most people, when they talk about the Bible, it's the Bible they, they're used to reading at home in their own language, which somebody translated. But I have a question that many of our listeners for Spirit in Action will surely also have. So we can talk about and point to errors of censorship or mistranslation that happens in the Bible, taken from Hebrew and Greek and Latin, English, other languages. But I'm sure many of our listeners for Spirit in Action had the question, sure, there could be errors in the translation, but do we believe that the original words, as they were written down, the words originally passed, word of mouth, which are copied by people, Why do we believe that they're inherently or particularly important? Wasn't this just someone's opinion three or 4,000 years ago? That's a good question. I can only speak for myself, and I cannot impose my views, and I don't want to impose my views on any other person. But I can say about what I have experienced in the Bible myself. What comes to me often in the Bible, not maybe in every passage or in every story, no, but in some passages, I feel touched, I feel moved, and I feel challenged in a way that may even make me question my own life, my own views, my own opinions. And perhaps most importantly, in my own personal case, I can say I have found healing. So as far as I'm concerned, a book that provides me with healing at a very critical moment of my life, I'm going to stick with it and wrestle with the other parts that I may find challenging or difficult, but I'm there. I fall in love with this book. And love is so important. It's part of your title of your book, right? Love, Gender, and Sexuality in the Bible. And you also, Renato, you deal with the clobber texts, those passages from the Bible that are used to subvert, attack, and clobber certain folks. And mind you folks, covering even a tiny part of what's in this book means we're going to go well beyond the 55 minutes allotted to our broadcast version. So you'll also find a link on NordenSpiritRadio.org to the uncut version. Go there to get the full treatment and read the book to get even more added to your understanding. But some of the texts that have been most damaging in Christian societies are the passages from Leviticus, which is a kind of a rule book that spells out the specifics of the law. You specifically deal with the clobber text, like the one that is usually translated to say that if a man lies with another man, you get to kill him. And I would just point out that I find plenty of passages in the Bible that I have serious problems with, like when Yahweh, God, evidently tells Moses and the Israelites to go into those areas of Canaan and kill every person, every goat, every creature. you got to wipe them all out. And that just doesn't seem like the all-loving God that I know and I've experienced firsthand. So, I have a whole lot of problems with what is included in the Bible. But back to Leviticus, where we're told by these rules that if a man lies with a man or goes into him, that you get to kill him. So, tell me about your wrestling with these most, I guess, definitive, I'd say, of statements that most people drag out to talk about why homosexuality is bad. 
Yes, I have wrestled definitely a lot with this particular text and some of the other ones you mentioned. I'm also comfortable, rather, in the insight that all texts in this world have to be interpreted. And we probably, at least many of us, are living a time when taking the Bible literally is almost fashionable in some sense. But I don't think you can read all texts in just one way. In fact, you may even realize when you go back to texts you knew well and you read them five years ago, you'll see something different in today. That's what happened to me all the time. So Leviticus also needs interpretation. What do these words mean as they were spoken, as they were written? What did it mean to the people listening? What did it mean to their lives? Did everybody follow all these rules and regulations exactly as they are stated there? Probably not. When it comes to Leviticus 18, verse 22, yes, it has been taken to mean a prohibition of same-sex relationships. In fact, I'm told in some Jewish circles, it's simply called the prohibition. But I, as a linguist, I have huge problems with that verse. In this book, we're talking about holy censorship or mistranslations. I identify 18 different interpretations. I keep finding more. I think I'm up to 22 at the moment. I'm, I'm beginning to keep a catalog of interpretations of this verse. Why is that so, if it's so obvious to some people, it, it is so because it's so unusual, the Hebrew. It doesn't state the things that we as supposed to feel it does. It doesn't state it in a straightforward manner. So, and why doesn't it do that? It could mean that it means something different. So I, that is suspicion that I'm finding helpful there to see what else could be in there rather than what some people call the obvious. And I don't even see it as obvious anymore. Having, you know, looked at it from left to right, from inside out. It's a very unusual phrase, very unusual sentence. So it could mean some or any or maybe none of the 18 interpretations that I'm now uh, putting into my book. Could you share a couple of them with us so we get an idea what these alternative meanings might be? Yeah, I mean, we are obviously, uh, you've already mentioned the obvious one that m most people think they have understood, that it's all about homosexuality. Just uh, with a man, you shall not lie as with a woman, so on. But it doesn't say as with a woman anywhere. It maybe says rather with a male, you shall not lie the lying places of a wife. Now, what does that mean in English? Well, I wonder too, but that's what it says in the Hebrew. So I wonder what the Hebrew means also, because it's unusual, an unusual language. It, maybe it's not a woman, maybe it's a wife. And what does a wife have to do with this scene? So I have all of these different suggestions for you. And here's a couple of them. It could mean a prohibition, according to some, I mean, commentators, you know, they all have, all are offering uh, their different versions of it all. Some people think it could be a prohibition against the active party in anal intercourse between men. But others then think, you no, know, I think rather it's the passive party in anal intercourse. Some people say, well, actually, um, if you lie with a man or a male as with a female, then you are actually reducing his social status because women, you know, had a lower status than men, treating him as a woman, et cetera, et cetera. But most of these interpretations, as I'm pointing out, are based on, as I can see, a faulty translation. And I, I do mean this literally because it does not say as with a woman. There's no as and there's no with there. So it must mean something different. Martin Luther, I thought he had an interesting suggestion. Martin Luther felt this is a prohibition of pederasty, you know, adult male and young teenage boy. It could be a response to that, according to Martin Luther, or maybe, maybe even pedophilia, a minor. 
So this could be a prohibition of pedophilia, which makes sense in most cultures anyway. So that's Martin Luther's suggestion. And then other ideas are, this is a prohibition of male-to-male incest. Two males in the family should not lie together, should not share a bed. Or it could be a prohibition of incest between father and son. There is a parallel law with somewhat similar terms among the ancient Hittites, forbidding a father to have sex with his son. And so on. So I, all I'm saying is I'm listing 18 different options there and with more to come. Could I add one? Yes. Just the words that as I've heard you translate them, it could be a prohibition that says if you're going to have sex with a man, you shouldn't do it in his marital bed. You shouldn't do it in the place where he would have sex with his wife or you'd have sex with your wife. You must do it differently. So the lying downs of a woman or your wife or of the marital bed, maybe that's the possibility. Just if you're going to have homosexual love, keep it out of your household. Do it somewhere else. And why not? Does that get it all close to what the words actually say? Does that seem at all viable as a translation? As far as I can see, it gets close enough to my list of of 18 as number 19, for example. Or 23. You said you were up to that much. (laughs) Or 23, in fact. Yes, you're right. In fact, I was thinking about that idea this morning. Maybe I should add that, you know, to uh, the next edition of my book. So you're bringing it up here. So obviously, I think there's a very good reason for it now to be included. It's perhaps obvious to all of us. We each deal with our own self-interest, our own views of the world whenever we approach something. In your case, having recognized your attraction to other men, that you came out as gay long ago, it seems that you have motivation to question whether they are really talking about folks like you in these passages of Scripture. If those anti-gay translations were accurate, it might make it hard to keep holding the Bible as precious. There are people who hate gays for whatever reason is built into their systems, and they have this justification to bolster their self-image, their prejudices. So maybe they're trying to put down the words in a way to solidify their own prejudices. So anyway, you point out a whole lot of alternative ways that this could be translated and understood. Do you have a sense anywhere along the way that we can actually even attain truth as we're searching through the scriptures? The absolute truth that will be good and fine for every person on planet Earth, probably, is unattainable. That much I can see. But what we can catch, in my experience, is glimpses of truth that work for you. And what glimpses of truth are in the Bible are those, for me, that make my life richer and deeper and more joyful. And I have found that. Even doing this work, uh, dealing with the famous clobber texts, has been joyful, strangely enough. Because, to be honest with you, you already know that I started out with Sodom and Gomorrah and spent those four years on that text until I felt, okay, I can present it in decent shape. But then I had to go on to Leviticus, and I had to go on to a number of other texts in the Bible, including the Apostle Paul. I went to him very last because I was not attracted initially to his letter to the Romans, chapter 1, and to 1 Corinthians, where there are some famous clobber texts too. But when I finally got there, it was like, wow, this is interesting. 
So I'm glad I've been through them all. And rather than running away from them, I decided to go in there. And I'm reminded a little bit of some old folk tales in certain traditions where people live in haunted houses. And it gets so bad on them that they decide to move to another place to get rid of those demons or ghosts or whatever it is haunting them there. So they, they move away from the house and da 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 and move to another town far away from there. And then, whoo, thankfully, now we're... We have left that behind, but only to discover a few days later, uh-oh, one of those demons made it all the way here, maybe hiding among the furniture. And in some of these stories, the resolution doesn't come until the haunted person plucks up the courage, turn around 180 degrees and face the demon and actually have a conversation with them. Maybe sit down and look them in the eye until they know their name. From that moment on, the demon loses all power over them. And that's been my experience with the Klobotics. I was running away from them for a long time. Uh, no, I'd rather not. But now having gone in there, having sat down with him and looked them in the eye and had this conversation, I now feel very, very good about all of them. Folks, we've been speaking with K. Renato Lings. You can find him on Facebook at Renato Lings 5. That link is on nordenspiritradio.org. And perhaps he'll find some inspiration to get his website up again someday soon. And if so, it might be a little bit easier to get to him. But follow the Facebook link from NordenSpiritRadio.org. We've been talking about his latest book, Holy Censorship or Mistranslation, Love, Gender, and Sexuality in the Bible. And we've just scratched the surface. I think that in total, Renato, you must have read well over a thousand books to be able to distill it to this 300-page book. You certainly have referenced many hundreds of books and writings in this volume. So I'm so impressed by the work, the depth, the honesty, the openness, the seeking of it. And I'm so thankful that you joined us here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you very much, Mark. It's been a blessing to share this conversation with you. Again, I have the links to K. Renato Lings on NorthernSpiritRadio.org because we've talked for far beyond our 55-minute broadcast length. There are going to be excerpts and a full uncut version of this interview on NorthernSpiritRadio.org. So please visit our site, listen to the extended version, and we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh